Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Today we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ along with millions of other Christians around the world. Believers everywhere are gathering to praise God for His great mercy and grace and the forgiveness granted through the cross and the resurrection. It is a fantastic time to celebrate and give praise and thanks for the love of our Heavenly Father and the work accomplished by His Son, Jesus. As I began to prepare for this Easter message, I was excited for the opportunity to to speak on Easter Sunday. But in all honesty, I also wrestled a little bit. In my mind, the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, was buried and resurrected on the third day is the most incredible message ever shared. As Paul said, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. The resurrection of Jesus is the hinge point of Christianity. As I prepared, I wanted to focus on this central aspect of our faith. And I also wanted to look at it from a little bit of a different perspective, one that would both encourage us and challenge us in a way that may not have been done in the past. And as I was praying and digging into different articles and messages regarding the resurrection, I looked up what one of my favorite writers had to say, Bob Diefenbaugh, and I found his insights to be personally very inspiring and challenging. And so I want to credit him for the key ideas that, that come through today. In Mark 16, 1 and following, we find three of the women who had been followers of Jesus heading to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. They brought spices with them to anoint the body of the Lord. Now this act, typical act of burial preparation, had been missed in the rush to avoid the Sabbath, and they wanted to give Jesus the most decent burial possible despite the harshness of his death. At this point in the letter, Mark actually does a really good job of allowing us into the thinking of the ladies as they headed to the tomb. They had seen much. They had been through much the last few days. They'd seen their Lord, their teacher, and their friend tried unfairly, beaten mercilessly, and then killed on a brutal Roman cross. And yet, despite all that they had witnessed, there was one big question looming in their minds. Mark 16, verse 3, Who will roll away the stone? Joseph of Arimathea had rolled the stone across the opening of the tomb on preparation day, the day prior to the Sabbath. Now this task wasn't too difficult for him to do single-handedly since a slight downhill trough was cut into the bedrock. Now this was typical tomb preparation at the time. But to roll the stone uphill, now that was an entirely different question. And I'm not so sure that the women knew about the Roman guards or about the seal on the stone either. These were also huge barriers to accessing the body of Jesus. But since these had been put in place on the Sabbath after the women had been there with Joseph, it's unlikely that the ladies knew of them. But they knew of the stone, and they knew it was big. Verse 4 tells us it was a very large stone. Now, have you ever thought about it? I just want to pause for a minute. About the idea that God seems to use large stones. He seems to be in the habit of putting large stones, large rocks, large problems, really, in our lives that block us and frustrate us. And at times they they intimidate us and often make us feel small. Now typically we hate coming up against large stones, these big problems. But I think that God puts large stones in our lives to evidence His power. If it's a little stone, I mean we can manage that on our own. Little stones, no problems, no trouble. 
But big stones or big problems are different. These are big issues. But it's in overcoming the large issues of life that God reveals His authority and His power and His, a great, His great ability and plan. So if there's a large stone or a big problem in your life right now, if there is, be encouraged because God specializes in working with big problems. For it's in these large issues that the authority and the greatness of God is truly revealed. Now, back in Mark, we find that when the women arrive at the tomb, the stone had already been rolled away. They'd been worrying about this, and I mean, it was a significant issue, and yet when they got there, the problem was already taken care of. 16 verse 4 again, when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. So often we're like the women in Mark's account. We worry and we fret. We're overcome by all of the what-ifs. You know, what if this happens or what if that happens? And sometimes these what-ifs, they can consume us and even paralyze us. But in the resurrection story, we see that God took care of the women's concern before it even became an issue. We don't need to worry. We don't need to be consumed by the what-ifs because God works at the situation from both sides. The women were worried about the stone. But God took care of the problem before they even got there. He was working on the problem from both sides. And the picture that I get of this is out of the trapeze act at the circus. We're the ones flying through the air, letting go of the bar. We're spinning only to be caught in the precise moment by God who knows exactly where we are and exactly when to put his side of things into effect. But see, it's up to us to take that step of faith and let go of the bar. In Mark 16, we see the stone had been rolled away before the women got there. And not only was the stone rolled away, God had been accomplishing far more than the women knew about. And here I want to switch over to the Matthew account for some, a little bit of extra insight. The religious leaders had heard Jesus say he would rise after three days. Now, they didn't understand how this could happen. From their human perspective, they thought the disciples would steal the body to make it appear that Jesus had risen from the dead. So... The political leaders, the religious leaders, asked the Romans to secure the tomb, which they did. They posted a guard, and then they placed a seal on the tomb. And I imagine it being a large, waxy-type seal, probably with some sort of a stamp in it, representing the political leadership. Now, the seal itself wasn't a big deal. But what it represented was. It represented a direct order from Pilate himself. So you could actually get in big trouble for breaking the seal. But who broke it? Who broke the seal? The angel rolled away the stone, but who broke the seal? In Matthew 28, 2, we read that there was a violent earthquake when the angel of the Lord ascended to roll away the stone. See, the angel came and moved the stone, but God broke the seal by means of an earthquake. Now, while we're in Matthew, I also want to talk for a moment about the guards. Now, they were obviously posted to protect the tomb and keep anyone from tampering with the body of Christ. But when the angel showed up, the guards were so terrified they fainted. Matthew 28, 4 says they shook and became like dead men. Now, these were seasoned, battle-hardened Roman soldiers. These men had seen things and done things that would make a lot of other people faint. And yet, when they saw the angel, they dropped. They're taken out of the equation. They essentially became ineffective. So, when we think of all of these security measures around the tomb, what I think of when I consider these is that when it comes to the work of God, nothing can stand in the way. God will accomplish His will regardless of the opposition. It doesn't matter what or who is standing in the way. Not the guards, not Pilate, and certainly not His seal. So if you're sensing that God has been leading you, and you've 
uh, sense that this direction is from him, that you've tested it, that you've affirmed it with scripture, that the Holy Spirit came, seems to affirm it as well, and you've run this past God's people, and all of these affirmations uh, affirm your direction, then I just want to encourage you this morning to keep moving in that. God may shift it. He may adjust it. He, you may have to pivot. So be aware of that. But if God is truly leading you towards something in his will for you and for his kingdom, be patient because God accomplishes his will and nothing can change that. Now from the Matthew account, we know the guards collapsed in fear when they saw the angel. But back in the Mark account, it seems to me that the women, they had more courage than the Roman soldiers did. They came to the open tomb. I mean, what's this about? That was frightening. And yet they still went in and there they encountered the angel. Mark 16, 6, don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, for us hearing this message 2,000 years later, well, that brings joy and hope and peace. But the women who experienced this firsthand, well, they had a very different response. Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What they had experienced was far beyond human understanding. The events surrounding the resurrection were actually very frightening. I mean, think about it for a minute. An earthquake, this mass of impossible stone, it's moved. And the tomb, it's empty where they expected to find the body of Christ. The angel, his message, all of this was overwhelming to say the least. And the women's response was understandable. The women were confused and uncertain and afraid. The reality of the resurrection didn't make sense to them. It didn't compute. The meaning of the resurrection hadn't made an impact on them yet. And so they slipped away quietly and fearfully. And now <laughs> we actually come to a huge problem in the Mark passage. If you take your Bible, what does it say about Mark, 9, uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20? Mine says this, and I'm quoting from the NIV. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Most translations say something like that. Some of the newer ones don't, but the majority, especially the older ones, say something similar. Verse 9 of Mark 16 through to the end is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Many scholars say that this portion of Mark is written in a different style. He uses different vocabulary. So they doubt Mark actually wrote the ending to his letter. Some say he intended to end at verse 8. Some say he didn't intend to end at verse 8, but his conclusion was lost or misplaced. There are some who suggest that Mark died and his ending was left unwritten. For whatever, for whatever reason, we don't have this part of Mark's gospel in the earliest manuscripts. So is verse 8 the proper conclusion to Mark's gospel? If it is, it's like that TV station a few years ago that was covering the Rough Rider game. It was a really close game, and if you're a Ryder fan, you'll remember this. I think there was about five minutes left. The Riders had the ball. We were pushing towards the end zone. And then all of a sudden, the station switched coverage to an Eastern Conference game that was just starting. And it just felt wrong. It felt incomplete. It was inconclusive. If verse 8 is the right conclusion to Mark's letter, it, it just feels wrong. Incomplete. It ends with frightened women. Not the powerful work of our amazing God. Now, personally, I don't know if Mark actually did write 9 to 20. Even among scholars, the jury is still out. But I think it is the, the correct conclusion, regardless of who wrote it for several reasons. 
First, the majority of manuscripts for the last thousand years have included it. Not the earliest, but medieval times till now do include it, giving it credence. Now, secondly, someone else could have written the ending under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, making it consistent with the larger message of the Gospels regarding the resurrection. And we actually see this occur elsewhere in the Bible. We know that Deuteronomy was written by Moses, and yet he died in the last chapter before the book ends. And then someone else that we don't know, they're unnamed, but they're inspired by the Spirit of God, they complete the chapter. Now thirdly, I think 9-20 through 20 is the correct ending to Mark's Gospel because it's, it is consistent with the other Gospels regarding the resurrection and the works of Jesus. So what do we see in Mark 16, 9-20, along with the other Gospels regarding the conclusion to the resurrection? Well, first of all, we see that the angel's message confirms that Jesus is alive. It's in, all, it's in the Gospels. The angel's message to the women when they went into the tomb is actually the climax of Mark's resurrection account. Verse 6, you are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. Here the angel verifies Jesus' death. Now there are some who say that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he fainted on the cross, and that he was revived physically when he was placed in the cool of the tomb. But the gospel accounts tells, tell us that this was impossible. John 19, starting at verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. This would speed up death. And the religious leaders of the time did not want the bodies on the crosses during the Sabbath, so they wanted to, to remove them from, from the scenery of that season. But then verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. See, Roman soldiers knew what death looked like. They understood this. In a weird kind of way, this was their business. They knew, they understood, and so they did not break the legs of Christ because they saw he was already dead. But just to make sure, one of the soldiers took a spear and thrust it into Jesus' side and it produced a flow of blood and water. A sure sign of death. Jesus was physically dead. He did not simply faint and then later revive. But then next in Mark's Gospel, the angel speaks of the most significant event in human history. He is not here. He has risen. Verse 6, He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Matthew says it this way, He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. Luke puts it like this, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. See, the angel's message in all the Gospels confirmed that Jesus was crucified, that he was in fact dead. But the angel also tells us that death could not hold him. God raised him from the dead, and the women who went to the tomb, they were witnesses of this. The tomb was empty. We also see that there are multiple accounts of those who saw the, re the resurrected Christ. All the Gospels include appearances of Jesus. He appears to Mary Magdalene, to the other women as they leave the tomb, to two disciples traveling to Emmaus. He appears to the ten disciples as they gathered, and then later on to the eleven, which included Thomas. As we move toward the end of the Gospels, we see Jesus appearing to the disciples while they were fishing, and then finally on a mountain in Galilee. But this isn't the end. In Acts, Jesus meets Saul, who later became Paul on the road to Damascus. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it's recorded that 500 people 
many of whom were still alive at the time the letter was written, saw Jesus while together at the same time. These were all first-hand accounts written down shortly after they occurred, giving them greater historical accuracy and authenticity. We see as well in the Gospels that the resurrected Christ gave his followers the Great Commission, which they fulfilled. All four Gospels contain some form of commissioning mandate. Followers of Jesus are commanded to go into the world preaching and teaching about Jesus. John uses sending terminology. 20 verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Luke's record is a little more of a summary, and this is actually Jesus speaking in Luke's record. He told them, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now, the Matthew account and the Mark account are actually very similar. Matthew is most well known, so I'll read that this morning. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All four Gospels include some form of sending mandate, including Acts chapter 1. Now, typically, when the leader of any movement dies, the vision dies along with them. And the followers, well, they get discouraged and they disperse. But this wasn't the case with the disciples. They took up the challenge to spread the message about Jesus wholeheartedly. They carried out his commission, despite imprisonment, torture, and even death for some. This isn't normal. This isn't what happens after the death of a leader. The disciples were totally and completely convinced that Jesus was alive. And he was. He appeared to them. He was alive. And so they did their utmost to carry out his final commission. This overwhelming response of the disciples to the sending commission of Jesus is evidence of the resurrected Christ. As we look at the Gospels, including Mark 16, 9 through 20, the only conclusion we can arrive at is that Jesus was resurrected from, a, from the dead. He is alive. The resurrection is real. The resurrection is true. It took place. It happened. Jesus is alive. But I do have one more thing for us to consider this morning. If we were to take the position that Mark 16.8 is the end of the resurrection account, we find that the women were confused and uncertain regarding all of what had happened. They didn't understand what had taken place, and as a result, they were afraid and remained silent. But when we look at the rest of Mark 16, as well as the other Gospels, we see a different story. The resurrection changed those who followed Jesus. It changed them incredibly. They were, they were transformed. They went from confused to confident. They went from uncertain to completely convinced. They went from afraid and silent to sold-out spokespersons. They traded in their old lives and lived completely for Jesus. That's how the resurrection changed those who followed Jesus. So as I, I wind things up this morning, I have one final question, and that's this. Which ending have you chosen? And I don't mean which ending have you chosen to be the legitimate ending to Mark. I mean which ending have you chosen to live by? Are you living as if the Gospel of Mark ended at verse 8? Quietly? Silently? Perhaps even in fear? Or has the reality of the resurrection truly impacted you? Have you fully embraced the truth that Jesus alive is alive? As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, do you believe that Jesus was crucified for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day? 
Are you living a life empowered by Him, by the Spirit of God? Has the mission of Jesus and, and His kingdom work become central for you? If you have been living like verse 8 of Mark 16 is the end, you can embrace a new ending even today. If you've been living in fear, we can give that to the Lord and invite His perfect love to cast out fear, as John says, 1 John. If you've been living in silence, you can give that to the Lord too and start praying for your non-believing friends and the courage to share with them. And lastly, we can invite the Spirit of God to make the resurrected Jesus, the living truth, a reality in your life. Pray with me today. Father, I want to thank you that Jesus came, that he was crucified, that he was buried, that he gave his life for our sins, but that he was resurrected on the third day. I thank you that the tomb is empty. I thank you that Jesus is alive. And I thank you that his followers lived in resurrection power, that they did amazing things because they were so convinced of who you are and, and, and are even now in our lives. And today, Lord, if we've been living like verse 8 is the end, I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that your perfect love would cast out that fear and that we would step into the truth of who you are and live, live with courage and live with a voice that, that recognizes who you are and with that voice shares who you are to the people around us. Give us that courage. We confess if we've not been in that place. We give that to you and we just invite the Spirit of God even today to make the reality of the resurrection um, true in our lives. Give us that courage today to live, as the rest of Mark says, in confidence, sold out, and on, on purpose for the kingdom of God and for the mission of Jesus. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you again that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, that he is alive. We thank you for this incredible message today, and we give you praise, and we give you ourselves to live accordingly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you, and thanks for listening.